Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist feminist podcast that, for legal reasons, has never done psychedelics. (laughs) Today we have Zoe, Laura, and Bianca. I like this intro because we have an entire psychedelics series, but it's perfect. It's true. Yeah. That series could be hypothetical. It's fiction. Exactly. I also just couldn't think of anything, and I was like, well, this is funny because we clearly all have. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, today we're going to be talking about psychedelic feminism. So I wanted to start off by just explaining a little bit about what that means. So psychedelic feminism was coined by Zoe Helene as, quote, a subgenre of feminism that embraces the transformation and inspirational power of psychedelic healing, transformation, self-liberation, and mind-body-spirit exploration in altered states of consciousness. It's kind of unfortunate because Zoe Helene is, like, kind of problematic um primarily in two ways one she's very like bioessentialist even though like some places on her website are like talking about like the gender spectrum most places on her website are like very like woo woo about like women the wild woman the like whatever intuition from within just like yeah a a little too much of that for me for my taste Mm. um And also her organization gives people grants to like basically go do spiritual tourism. And we'll talk more later on about like what is problematic about that. But honestly, like being the better Zoe doing psychedelic feminist research is part of what um, fuels me. So I feel fine about that. One good Zoe to teach us all. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And correctly administer psychedelics to us legally once you can. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, working on it. So yeah, although she was the first person to use like that terminology, she's hardly the first person to apply a feminist lens to psychedelics. Psychedelic feminism um, pulls from a few different schools of feminist thought. Um, The main ones are ecofeminism, decolonial feminism, and the French feminist notion of écriture féminine. And I'm very sorry to our French listeners. Um, I did take five years of public school French and it did nothing for me. But what that means is writing the feminine. Hell yeah. And um, historian Kim Hewitt says that psychedelic usage is innately feminist in part because it strays from the masculine notion of rationality. It's important to note that like psychedelic feminism and the psychedelic feminine is not confined to any particular gender in the way I was talking about with some of like Zoe Helene's writing. Rather, according to French feminist thought, the feminine refers to what has been repressed and misrepresented in the West. So the feminine in this sense is not associated with a particular gender, but rather refers to everything that's been exiled from patriarchal discourse built on the Enlightenment's era notion of logic, rationality, individualism, and goal-oriented processes um, being seen as the only forms of efficacy. So the masculine seeks to tame, conquer, colonize, dominate, and get to the point as quickly as possible. And on the contrary, femininity encompasses what's been erased from that narrative as unnecessary, a threat, or excessive, including the unconscious, emotion, imagination, and pleasure, all of which um, I wouldn't know personally, but I've heard are part of a psychedelic (laughs) experience. (laughs) I I will claim that I know. (laughs) I'm okay. People can come for me. 
<laughs> but yeah, what? that's really interesting. I had never thought about it in the, that like divide, but it is true. Like all the things that kind of come with the embodied knowledge once you take psychedelics is very like connective and very kind of like non-combative inherently. It's like very hard to explain if you never have, but like it's like it is like this embodied version of what you're describing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I love um, because when I was working on this research and I'll give as little incriminating information about this person as possible, but someone who may or may not have been one of my professors was like, oh, like from my experience with them. And I was like, yes. yes. Um, <laughs> and yes, I will give no more information about that person, but it was great. I love finding out that people you like wouldn't suspect are like are down. Yeah. Hell yeah. So a lot of the current research and usage of psychedelics erases the historical ties with um, folk healers. In um, a television appearance from 1975, Simone de Beauvoir said, quote, in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance, the female physician had much power. They knew about remedies and herbs. The old wives' remedies were of great value. The medicine was taken away from them by men. The witch hunts were a way for men to keep women away from medicine and the power it conferred. In the 18th and 19th centuries, statutes were drafted by men that prevented women who were imprisoned, fined, and otherwise persecuted from practicing medicine unless they had attendance, attended certain schools, which they were not admitted to. Um, and women were relegated to the roles of nurses of Florence Nightingale as aides and assistants. And I like this quote because it shows how patriarchy, industrialization, colonialism, um, as we've talked about many times in relation to the witch hunts, sought to um, exclude women from many realms of life. But one of those is like their previous expertise as healers of the community. And then to talk a little bit more on the ecofeminist ties with psychedelic feminism, ecofeminism um, one of the kind of main principles is the idea that an overarching, overarching logic of domination exploits nature for its resources and simultaneously oppresses people by associating them with being closer to nature based on gender, race, class, sexuality, etc. Pretty much all, all the intersections. And there are some cringy liberal ecofeminists, which I know give it a bad name because they like essentialize women and claim that women are more nurturing or closer to nature than men. But also liberals try to ruin literally everything. Um, and so I will not let them take ecofeminism from us. And yeah, those aren't like really what it means. Ecofeminism um, also asserts that gendered metaphors have been extended to other perceived binaries. Um, including things like abled and disabled, colonizer and colonized, straight and queer, and of course, men and women, you've heard of them. <laughs> in each of these pairings, there is what's seen as a valued or a more masculine, and then a devalued or feminine. And the devalued group is feminized in order to give more power to the valued. So ecofeminist theorist Anzaldúa, who, fun fact, is known to have done mushrooms. Hell yeah. So she knows, believes that inequalities are enabled by binary thinking, and she argues that binary culture is violent and oppressive because it's unable to account for the complexity of the human experience, which limits the scientific development. We recently read Braiding Sweetgrass in the reading group, and like a lot of what was talked about in that book is really how indigenous people view the world around them and also like interact with the world around them and just like 
one of the things that stuck out to me the most was how she writes about how the colonial perspective is like humans are the the end of evolution we are like the highest level of evolution and more indigenous thought is humans have been here the least amount of time on planet earth we know the least about what it is to live on this planet because of that and can learn so much from other plants fungi and animals because of our like newness to this world and i think that like ecofeminism taps into that as well yeah absolutely um so yeah the next thing we want to go into is more of the history of um psychedelics and some other substances this is by no means all of the ones that exist just just some history for you so psychedelics have existed and been in use for thousands of years but the term psychedelic which means mind manifestation was introduced in 1957 by Humphrey Osmond in order to separate the medicinal use of psychedelics from the pejorative bias that was often associated with them. For example, um, psilocybin, I do that every time, psilocybin, psilocybin. I always like put the L somewhere else. I'm always like psilocloplin. It's a tough one. But that is the active ingredient in psychedelic mushrooms and has been used in holistic healing for thousands of years. But Maria Sabina, who was a Mexican curandera, which essentially means like a feminine healer, um, introduced mushrooms to the rest of the world in 1955. And yeah, the next one I wanted to talk about a little is ayahuasca, which is a psychoactive plant that originated from the Amazon. And it's often talked about through this like lineage of white men who like discovered it, i.e. like colonizers that stole it. Um, You've you've heard of them. (laughs) The people who have ruined everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a vice video, some white man who like goes to some South American country and is talking about ayahuasca as if he's the one who discovered it in the first place. Yeah. Terrible. (laughs) Yeah. I knew someone from my high school who studied abroad in undergrad and um, did like an ayahuasca ceremony and just like talked about it in such a cringy way and would be like, yeah, like I've just never been the same. Like I've been high since. And I was like, I feel like you did it wrong. I don't know. Um, Yeah. Not that it won't like change your way of thinking, but just being like, yeah, I've been high for months. I was like, you have it. Yeah. Simply not how they work. Yeah. So yeah, one of the earliest Western encounters with ayahuasca was by a botanist named Richard Spruce in 1853. And the widespread interest didn't really arise until the 1960s when several books that were introduced um, in more like pop audiences talked about it. Dobkin de Rios was one of the prominent researchers to discuss indigenous ayahuasca uses and later actually published an apology um, expressing regret for popularizing it since it's now increasingly difficult for indigenous people of the Amazon to access um, for their spiritual practices. It has the energy of Justin Trudeau apologizing (laughs) for like Canada's role in indigenous massacres, but it's like he's like wearing indigenous garb when he's like a white man. Feels, feels it's it just. I mean, I don't know this person. Maybe it was real, but it, I feel like when white dudes are doing that, or like 
I don't know. It's hard not to know. It's hard to know what the root of that apology really is. Yeah, for sure. And so this um, writer named Bonnie Amor wrote an article for um, Bitch Media about spiritual tourism, which I mentioned a little earlier. Um, And that's the practice of appropriating other cultures, ceremonies and practices, um, specifically often through travel. And um, the article specifically talked about the colonization of ayahuasca. And they wrote that, quote, only under late capitalism is wellness seen as a luxury, something that can be purchased. These practices have been sold from indigenous communities, leaving the popular plant endangered in many parts of Peru. And the writer also explains that their curandera turns away tourists when they request ayahuasca because, um, and this is a quote from their curandera, we do not do natum, which is another name for ayahuasca, to get high or to fix all of our problems. We do natum so that we may stand in solidarity with our fellow brothers and sisters, to know ourselves so that we may know them, to love ourselves so that we can love them. And these practices are uh, a call for like community and solidarity, and that's what the ceremonies traditionally are used for. And as this writer wrote, like that kind of community and solidarity is foreign to colonizers. Mm. It's really interesting because I feel like if I'm ever like describing doing psychedelics to someone who hasn't done them, like one of the main things is like if you're going to do them with someone else, like they have to be someone that you trust completely. And it's really interesting that when you think about it in a community sense that there's this like standing in solidarity with one another and like imagining an entire community being able to be like connected in this way is like honestly – beautiful to think about and like so foreign to what life is under like capitalism in the United States. Um, But it's like I do find that when you trip with people, it definitely connects you to them in a way that uh, other just regular dynamics don't. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. So I want to get into some of the um, more – scientifically produced psychedelics. (laughs) Hell Um, yeah. (laughs) So therapeutic research with um, LSD, also known as acid, also known as, I'm not going to say the long word for it because I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the research on LSD began shortly after Albert Hoffman's discovery of the therapeutic properties in 1943. And that was the first mass produced and um, like dose controlled psychedelic, which I know Laura's going to talk more about like doses later on. But many researchers immediately saw the potential for LSD to unveil repressed memories, trigger unconscious brain activity, and open up new states of perceptual awareness. The number of research studies rose significantly in the later 1950s and peaked in the 1960s. And then pretty much disappeared due to um, the prohibition that started in 1966. Also just want to add um, in the name of feminism that there was a 100 year like anniversary conference for um, Albert Hoffman. Yeah, like a 100th birthday. I was like looking at the date and I was like, that doesn't make sense. Anyway, it was a celebration of him. And um, of the like 100 speakers, there were like four women that were like asked to speak at this thing. And it was just very like, patriarchal um but from that is how like some of the women that were there formed um their own like psychedelic research council so that's a cool outcome i guess but also men need to stop Mm. 
It's literally why we made this podcast is because like it'll be like we'll fit anyone who's not a cis man into the cracks of our shows and like you can be part of it. Like that's literally why we did this because we're like that's so exhausting. Like we're just going to cancel men. And here yeah. we are, you know, and you know yeah. that group of feminist psych- psychonauts. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Like took it into their own hands too. Yeah, they I was reading something that one of them wrote and she was just like, yeah, we realized that like basically it would take more work, as you were saying, to like get into those cracks, like be accepted in a conference than just like let's have our own. Right. So, yeah. Um, And then the next and last specific substance we're going to go into is this one. I'm going to say the long name methamphetamine or MDMA. (laughs) (laughs) Crushed it. Which was initially studied as a um, psychotherapeutic tool also before nationwide prohibition. The therapeutic potential was overshadowed by the politically manipulated media sensationalism of like drug trafficking and drug use around that time and the cultivation of exaggerated fears about the threat that it posed. Yeah, we know what what drug like propaganda looks looked and still looks like. Right. Right. But after after it was scheduled as an illegal substance, the academic articles started to also like reflect that culture cultural stigma, which like previously there were articles that were like, this is a breakthrough thing. And like people were impressed by it. And then just like the propaganda like really took over. But now it is being used um, in trial studies again. And it's considered this breakthrough therapy for treatment resistant PTSD because it's now understood that MDMA works so well for therapy because it has what's considered like a golden combination of pharmacological effects in that it reduces the brain's fear center um, or the amygdala, which stops traumatic memories from triggering a shutdown mode. And this can allow people to feel more safe while processing their trauma. It also increases oxytocin levels and causes an increase in serotonin, dopamine, and prolactin. And fun fact, I did once get to try medical MDMA and I like shared one with like someone, um, I won't give any information about, but we shared one that like they had gotten and like, we thought it was going to be less strong than like other MDMA we may or may not have done prior to that. It was very strong and we had quite a time. And this was like years ago, like yeah, several years ago. And they recently texted me being like, I just thought about that. Like, (laughs) wow, what a time. I mean, like in the past, I don't know, like two to three years, I have like continually tried to stay updated on research about how MDMA is now being reintroduced or focus on it has like increased again as a potential psychotherapeutic treatment. Um, there's this nonprofit research group that my friend told me about. It's, hand, it's headquartered in San Jose called the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies or MAPS for short. And they do a lot of research and conduct preliminary studies on using like all sorts of psychedelic drugs, including MDMA for like psychotherapeutic purposes and it draws on like prior medical research and like historical research that has been done as well. So there is this one study that they conducted where they found that like they they were trying to use MDMA as like a supplement to 
cognitive behavioral therapy. And so they recruited patients who were suffering from PTSD and like had been like participating in cognitive behavioral therapy prior to this. And then they did trials where they gave those patients, obviously like with their consent and everything, MDMA as a tool to help guide them through their cognitive behavioral therapy and also train their therapists on how to like provide therapy in the context of their client being on MDMA at the time. And the findings of the study were really, really promising. I believe I'm going to scroll down and look at the results, but like basically the more sessions the patients underwent, their like symptoms were able to improve, like increasingly so. And like, I mean, this is, I guess this evidence is a little bit less like, I guess, robust or whatever, because what I was going to say is like, they had their like study both before and after treatment. And this psychological assessment is supposed to like assess the severity of your PTSD. And of course we know that like psychological instruments while sometimes helpful can at other times be clunky and like not as useful of a tool. But anyway, they gave the study subjects this assessment after each of their sessions. And they found that basically like for the vast majority of the patients, the ones who had taken MDMA had experienced a vast like improvement of symptoms based on their scores on this assessment. And after I believe three sessions, many of them no longer met the quote unquote like criteria for having PTSD, which was like kind of shocking given that it was only three sessions. Um, and aside from like this psychological assessment, they reported like qualitatively just like feeling more well, while they were on MDMA, more equipped to deal with the the symptoms of PTSD, which can often include like very traumatizing flashbacks and like intrusive thoughts about the traumatizing experience they had. Um, and I mean, like as Zoe discussed, it is like like a property of the substance in that it basically allows you to think through things that might traumatize you in a more, in a less fearful way. Like you're more able to like clearly and like, I guess maybe, uh, I don't even know what the word is, like logically think through things that were previously very emotionally troubling. So I wanted to share that just cause it's been something that like I've read a lot about and apart from PTSD, there've also been some preliminary clinical trials that are even more preliminary than the ones done on PTSD patients to treat patients with eating disorders using MDMA for similar reasons. Like it helps them guide, like the MDMA theoretically would help them traverse troubling thoughts about eating disordered behavior in a less trepidating way. So yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. I know that generally like all of these in this category aid in like uh all of these drugs in this category aid in neuroplasticity, which also just like helps your brain be able to cope like that, what you were describing about how you might not be as triggered, but like, I think MDMA like helps with like more specifically the like patterned behavior, but it's mm -hmm. cool to see that like this 
area of drug and general aids in that. And I did just want to say because we had a I received a question on the psychedelic subseries about having SSRIs and doing psychedelics and I specifically was talking about uh, mushrooms and LSD in that and like it's okay to do that you might need to take like slightly more to feel it but what I I did I haven't done MDMA yet I do want to um, but I didn't because at the time when I had it available to me I was on an SSRI and yeah there's yeah. like a bit of a kind of canceling out and if you do too much then like also you can have um serotonin poisoning Um, yeah Um, yeah which i have had actually not from combining any drugs literally just from like the ssri that i was on but it's a really bad time so yeah yeah, i would just look it up and know before you do anything yeah but um yeah in i think i think like in my experience like ssris and mdma sort of negate each other Mm -hmm. which is like very dangerous because you don't get any of the beneficial effects of either the MDMA or the SSRIs. So yeah, that would definitely be something to look into if you were curious about doing it for yourself. Hell yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Serotonin syndrome, not fun at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah. And I know people that have had it from, yeah, doing Molly combined with other things, Mm -hmm. not to, not to scare anyone, just like look up what you're taking and how it interacts and know that and then it'll be okay. Yeah. But I wanted to also just talk a little bit about um, kind of how like the war on drugs played into this. And I'm not going to go too into it because I know we talked about the war on drugs on several other episodes. And I was just thinking of this earlier that like whoever is out there making like season of the bitch like bingo cards, I would like Zoe talks about the war on drugs to be on the bingo (laughs) card. (laughs) Someone make a season of the bitch bingo card, please. Or like a drinking game or like whatever. Just make it make it fun. Yeah. So yeah, Nixon officially declared the war on drugs in 1970. But it was of course, like the legislation was kind of building up to like, his official declaration. But it picked up substantial steam under Ronald Reagan with um, the First Lady Nancy launching the Just Say No campaign, which we talked about a lot on the Reagan episode. But the anti-drug crusade continued during the Bush and Clinton administration as they increased spending for drug arrests, popularized drug testing, built more prisons, um, perpetrated stigma via media messaging, and increased prison sentencing for drug charges. And actually, Surgeon General Dr. Jocelyn Elders, who is a girl boss icon, icon. <laughs> was forced out of office under the Bush administration for pointing out that like other measures should be taken to focus on treatment rather than mass incarceration. And they were like, no, get the fuck out. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And um, the war on drugs, of course, caused an increase in racist policing, such as stop and frisk, and led to a huge increase in prison populations across the U.S. Um, and then additionally, just as it relates to psychedelics, the Omnibus Drug Act passed in the 1980s, which made all research with psychoactive compounds illegal. Ugh. Yeah. And the long-lasting effects of this are really real. I would say they're most prominent in the boomer generation. Um, so part of when I uh, switched to microdosing and went off of my SSRI, I went, I felt okay going to my therapist because my therapist is like in her 30s. And, um, and she was totally okay with it and on board. I will say when my mom found out about the psychedelics episodes, you know, because of the internet or whatever – 
she literally thought that I was like teaching people how to overdose and like got really upset with me and thought that like people would be sent to the hospital because of the things that I was saying. And uh, well, first of all, like one of the things to say, which I know we were going to get into a little bit later, but uh, psychedelics in general are like the safest substance to take in the sense that the amount of hospitalizations due to these drugs are literally the lowest, like lower than weed. And I think that like when we think about the differences between various drugs, like one of the main things I look at is addiction and many of or like psychedelics in general, or they are non-addictive. Um, so in their various studies, like uh, animals won't go for them again in the way that they will for other controlled substances. Um, and so I think part of this specific kind of connection between all of the drugs that like actually could be bad and drugs that are actually fine and good for society were linked together in this way, A, to try to rationalize more mass incarceration, but B, because psychedelics are inherently tied to enlightenment. <laughs> uh, and so the government specifically was shutting down the the massive research that was happening at the time Um that was having groundbreaking effects that like we've been talking about about these massive benefits are you saying the united states government doesn't like free thinking exactly (laughs) are you suggesting but you know when we talk about the olympics the united states is like look at how these other countries like do their rote memorization or whatever the fuck when like literally the united states is controlling like this very safe substance and how it is available to people in the united states Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, that's a really important point, too, about, like, why the government is so, like, hell-bent on demonizing, like, I mean, literally every substance, but, like, psychedelics included. And I think that's a good transition, because next we wanted to talk um, more about the, like, colonialism slash decolonialism related to um, psychedelics and, and research. So I talked about her work a little on the psychology app that we did a few weeks ago with Sashank, but um, anthropologist Evangia Fautois wrote about the connections between colonialism and psychedelic research. And she draws on the feminist notion of situated knowledge and power structures within scientific research. So she points out the difference between the Western notion of curing versus the indigenous practice of healing. And these concepts are deeply tied with the medical and scientific model in the colonized West as compared to um, the model more of like feminist healers and folk healers in many indigenous communities. Hell yeah. Were you gonna say something? I was just saying hell yeah. Oh, (laughs) I I heard a whisper and I wasn't sure what you said. (laughs) But yeah, psychedelic science has long gone hand in hand with colonialism as we were talking about with ayahuasca and a little bit earlier in the episode but this is in part because of the hegemony within western science over other forms of knowledge and photo explores ways to decolonize psychedelic science and understand indigenous knowledge and the western discourse around psychedelics tends to be very individualistic and focus on personal experience and medicalization and this is just the western discourse that is like positive about psychedelics not even to get into more of the negative stuff um which i'm about to because the european settlers projected many western notions onto indigenous healers um referring to them as quote fraudulent tricksters and frenzied mad people and witch doctors 
And this was really just demonizing this like more holistic healing. And um, Simone de Beauvoir spoke about how this stemmed from the suppression of spiritual practices in Europe prior to colonialization, like we were talking about with the witch hunts. And the prosecution of pagans and the witch hunts that followed targeted any practices that stemmed from folk religions. So following the witch hunts was the enlightenment period, which meant this rush to rationalistic, mechanistic, and linear worldview. And that was intensified by the capitalist obsession with wealth abstraction. Church dogma was replaced with the new modern doctrine of liberal scientism, which tends to be just as patriarchal, but was more so focused on like, oh no, we're not into church dogma anymore. Now this is like this very like rational fact-based, even though like we know what liberalism and no, it's not. (laughs) Right, (laughs) yes. Spoiler alert, that's false. (laughs) So one starting point to um, decolonizing psychedelic science, which Fautois writes about, is to stop approaching the indigenous ethnomedicine systems as like this subjective, symbolic and constructed while viewing like biomedicine or Western science as the objective truth, um, rather than like that these are two like ethnomedicinal systems and like both have both have different ways of knowing things and like different ways in which like different strengths that like could be brought together if that was done in like not a super colonialist way as it has been like it's not like oh this is like factual science um because as we'll get into when we talk more about the research a lot of it is not it's literally just based on white men like that's (sighs) whatever we'll get there But it's important to acknowledge that there are limitations of this like Western scientific knowledge, which really doesn't get addressed in the U.S. especially. And also the separation of like physical, emotional and spiritual well-being or health is a very Western notion. And that's largely absent from the indigenous, many indigenous thought processes on like healing and like holistic well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And related to this, uh one of the things that has kind of shifted from like indigenous use um, is with like, you know, modernity or whatever the fuck um, (laughs) is the way that dose is thought about. Um, So I know Zoe in their research found out about how most indigenous groups did intuitive dosing. So what you felt like you wanted from the mushroom or plant, that's what you took. Um, I didn't have a scale until I started the microdosing episodes because I felt like I needed to be more specific when I was explaining what I used to y'all. But for a long time, I eyeballed what I should take. Like when Zoe and I, in the beginning of quarantine, we had some days where we were just like going to do mushrooms on Zoom that together. That was so fun. <laughs> and we would like <laughs> hold up what eat what each of us were going to take to like the <laughs> the camera and be like, this is the amount that I'm taking. Um, and, uh, you know, I feel like there's kind of something to that. And it always went well. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yes. Um, yeah, exactly. It always went well. And so when I'm doing psychedelics with others, especially if they're new to it, they tend to want to know exactly the dose, which I get because I know there's a fear element to it. But as a reminder, most of these substances are extremely safe, um, as I kind of talked about before. So I think that the thing to know is it's more of a variant on intensity rather than safety. Um, although, of course, intensity could be related to emotional safety. Um, but generally, I found it really interesting when Zoe taught me about 
how measuring was never really a part of ingesting psychedelics until relatively recently in their usage. And another thing that I will say is that when I did psychedelics for the first time, the person who I did it with recommended that I did uh, like like a large amount, basically. And part of that is if you do kind of like a higher dose than even just like baseline tripping and um, to the essentially to do a dose where you're having some visual effects, it is. A, helps you get through the come up period, which is often the most challenging for people because a lot of the um, symptoms your body has as it's kind of processing the psychedelic mimics anxiety. And then the second thing is once you're up and you have that higher dose, it's like very euphoric. Um, And so kind of if you have fear about it, um, I kind of recommend that because it almost pushes past any of the possibility of you having like the ability to overthink it. Um, because once once you get to that place, if the dose is high enough, um, like the medicine takes over. And that's, uh, I, I think, a really cool way to be introduced to it. And then you can kind of scale back from there uh, without having the fear element of like what this substance does. Yeah, totally. Also, yeah, to speak a little bit to like the fear around it, like, yeah, I totally get that. And like, whenever I'm talking to someone that brings that up, like is like worried about doing it for the first time or whatever, every single person I've talked to about it and then has done it has been like, oh, like that wasn't scary at all. That was great. Like no one's been like, wow, that actually was scary. And I think like going into it with that mindset, like if you're going into it anxious, you're going to be anxious Mm -hmm. and like, maybe you're not going to like have a bad trip or like freak yourself out, but like you're going to come into it with that. So you're not going to feel as good as if you like take it just like, I guess feeling more like trusting and like trusting of yourself that like you're going to be okay. Absolutely. And like, as Laura said, there's an extremely slim chance you would not be okay. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like you will be like, you might have some unpleasant moments, but you're still going to be okay. Totally. And yeah, I think that's a good segue into the next thing we wanted to talk about, which was more of the like specific science and research that's been happening. And we did talk about this briefly on the psychology episode, um, because it's something that I think we're all just like pretty excited about, if you can't tell. (laughs) If it wasn't obvious. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, more recently, there's been what is referred to as a like psychedelic renaissance over the past few decades within science and psychology. And the sustained interest in researching psychedelics started in the 1950s, as I mentioned, um, and then was kind of like mostly halted um, for some prohibition. And now people are able to, to do studies again with like certain regulations, et cetera. But several studies have shown that psychedelics can be beneficial in treating a lot of mental illnesses, including depression, OCD, anxiety, PTSD, Um, And even actually for substance addiction, which I think surprises people, because as we were talking about before, people just like don't understand the difference of different types of substances because they're all seen as this like one monolithic, like those are drugs. Right. Like, oh, you're still using a substance then. So like, are are you actually kicking an addiction if you need that? And it's like it's medicine. If you're using it in this way, it's medicine. So fuck off. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yeah. And psychedelic medicine and research has been dominated by white men, as we've talked about a little bit. But this is in part why it's 
really important to consider this like decolonial feminist standpoint when we're talking about psychedelics and like looking into the research. So one of the primary uses of, of psychedelic research is for trauma healing. And in results of a randomized double blind study for patients with chronic PTSD, which means an average duration of um, 19 years, um, people demonstrated a remission for 83% of subjects that were given psychedelics alongside psychotherapy and compared to the 25% remission rate among the placebo group who received a placebo plus psychotherapy. And additionally, 74% of the subjects had sustained remission of their symptoms at follow-ups for up to 45 months after the initial study. Um, so psychedelics are thought to like catalyze therapy and increase the long-term positive effects by offering the emergence of repressed or otherwise like difficult to access memories. And like we were talking about with um, MDMA can like help with like the fear response. So you feel safer in talking about um, the memories that come up for you. And it can be like a very cathartic expression of emotion and also enhanced self-awareness. However, I want to talk about the lack of intersectionality in psychedelic assisted therapy research. So when looking at studies that were dated from 1993 to 2017, and the reason this started in 1993 was because the United States um, National Institute of Health, NIH, issued a mandate that funded research must include people of color. Mm. But plenty of studies don't do that. And they're just like, oh, we couldn't find anyone or like say like dumb shit. And the NIH doesn't like really press it. But 82.3% of participants of these studies were white. And part of the reasoning for that is due to what's like considered within the realm of trauma in a medical sense. And so PTSD in the DSM, which is used to, which used to only actually apply to military vets, now also includes exposure, witnessing, or learning that a loved one experienced death, threatened death, actual or threatened serious injury, or actual or threatened sexual violence racial trauma and any form of um, gender or sexuality related trauma other than sexual trauma are not included. However, um, black and indigenous people have an increased risk of trauma as compared to their white non-Hispanic peers. And the same goes for um, poor people are more likely to have trauma as compared to their wealthier counterparts. Um, Generally people from more marginalized sexualities and gender identities as compared to their like cisgender heterosexual counterparts. So people with more marginalized identities are at a higher risk for having traumatic experiences. And yet the participants of these studies are most likely to be straight white cis men from middle and upper class backgrounds. And there's several reasons why studies tend to lack diversity aside from the like selection and recruitment bias, which I mentioned, there are many societal stigmas and potential consequences that may make people of color less comfortable participating for example, like the penalties of possession of Schedule One drugs and punitive measures that have been taken against people of color for decades make them much more fearful of participating, even in a legal study that like if they're caught with it or if anything goes wrong or like they could still be criminalized for it. And there's, of course, this like hesitancy around that. And also the history of like coercive and racist medicine can also deter people of color from wanting to participate in like a scientific study that's most likely going to be run by white people and white men. And another major barrier to participating in psychedelic studies is the economic strain. So marginalized people tend to have higher economic burdens of participating in treatment studies due to the nature of these studies. There's, 
usually a large time commitment because it'll be kind of like a long session where you, um, you know, take the substance and then like have psychotherapy. And sometimes it even means like staying overnight, like it's a big time commitment. And so because of that, that means people have to like have time off from work, find childcare, potentially travel to the study, all kinds of other like logistical planning, which reminds me of some of the like similar complaints about access to abortion in that it relies on this level of privilege that you're able to do all of these things. And although many studies do have like some monetary compensation, it's often not really enough to like account for all of these barriers. But speaking of studies, um, Laura, I know you mentioned briefly on the psychology episode that you were chosen for a psychedelic study and said that the people running it have some like interesting approaches to the research. So I wanted to know if you want to talk more about that. Yeah, totally. Um, first of all, Zoe, thank you for sharing all of this research with us. If you didn't know, no like this entire episode <laughs> is like basically Zoe's research, which is really cool. So my participation in the study will be starting in a couple of weeks. Actually, I'm sorry. It will be starting tomorrow. <laughs> uh, and okay, but I, I did not even know that. I did have a one-on-one with the lead doctor, uh, Prapti Mehta. She is a psychiatrist who works with psychiatric healing, and her background is in psychotherapy and psychopharmacology practice, specializing in trauma, eating disorders, reproductive psychiatry, psychiatry, and gender transition. Um, so first of all, it's run by a woman of color, and secondly, she already focuses on trans issues. The study isn't through a big university, so it looks looks different than other clinical trials that Zoe was describing, um, and it's th- run through a network of mental health clinics in New York City, and because of that, they can't do the same things like dosing um, because of like what the rules are uh, for funding of various organizations. So the idea behind this study is basically group therapy for folks who are microdosing or who regularly integrate psychedelics into their lives. Um, like I said, the therapy itself does not include dosing, meaning they're not giving us any psychedelics. And you might be thinking like, okay, well, what is the study for? And I think what I gathered in the one-on-one with Dr. Meta was twofold. One, the questions she asked me were different than the type of questioning my personal therapist asks me because she is someone who uses psychedelics. It helped me understand the shift that happens when you're using psychedelics regularly. Like, there's a different way that you see and move through the world. So I think to have a therapist who has that mindset working with us in a small group every week will be really helpful in integrating and heightening the effects of psychedelics in our day-to-day lives. And secondly, the group will have people like me who use psychedelics regularly and also people who are open to using psychedelics regularly, but maybe haven't like fully integrated psychedelics into their lives. So it will be an opportunity for peer mentoring and also just a way for me to see how it's helpful for others. And I think when you see how it affects others, you can see some of the universal benefits. Plus, as Zoe was saying, psychedelics were traditionally used in community. So it really feels good to be working with the community on this. Um, and while it's different than the kind of study that's typically carried out, uh, you know, like I already know the benefits of psychedelics in my body because I, my life is significantly better because of them. So I don't necessarily need a doctor to be like, yes, this is beneficial to you. And there is a possibility of a large psychedelic ceremony at the end of our time together, which I would really love. 
That's amazing. That's super exciting. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm stoked. And I, I think, like, because it's not through a main, like, research uh, center and, like, it is this bit of a different thing. And, like, when I was talking to her, about, she was like, what was some of the stuff that you have, like, learned about yourself through psychedelics? And I told her about, like, I think being more concrete in my non-binary and queer identities was part of it. I mean, like, more my non-binary identity than my queer identity because that was more solid. And for her to, like, not miss a beat and, like, immediately start, like – talking about her experience with other trans folks with that I was like okay I feel like I would not have this experience if I was like with some like white cis man in a clinical setting yeah I was just thinking about that in tandem with what Sashank discussed on our episode with him a couple weeks ago like when we were discussing like how to like make room for people with marginalized identities in the space of like a psychological or psychiatric study. And I remember him saying like at every step of the way, like the study subjects need to be in like an equitable dialogue with the person running the study. And like, ideally the person running the study like has sort of like, either if if they don't have the kind of like lived experience as the study subjects, like at least an understanding of what like marginalization is like or how it affects people is important and so I think it's like really good that like as you said like the person who is like in charge of the study is someone who also like uses psychedelics and like understands transness and queerness yeah absolutely well that's amazing I'm super excited to hear more about the study when it starts tomorrow apparently so as of when this episode comes out it started Ooh. and if you want to hear more about that I bet you can on Laura's microdosing journey episodes through our patreon at patreon.com slash season of the bitch yes and also (laughs) thank you follow us on instagram and twitter at season of the b you can go to our website season of the b.com you can rate review subscribe on itunes if you're willing to give us five stars and say nice things about us otherwise please don't bother go get a life um, <laughs> that's me at the people that say mean things to us yeah <laughs> the person who wrote a comment that was like stop just stop i was like stop listen no one is like holding you at gunpoint forcing you to listen to season of the bitch go somewhere else yeah why don't you stop yeah the podcast <laughs> like listening Literally, to it. you can you don't have to listen but anyway since you're still listening you should point, Compulsive <laughs> you should. Of the bitch. <laughs> yeah and if you're still listening at this point you're probably not one of those people because you're still listening and you love us um is there anything else oh, you can email us season of the b at gmail.com <laughs> and also only if you're nice um <laughs> all of these things are for nice people only to be clear true amazing but yeah yeah i think that's Gosh. everything love you love you love you, love you. Bye. bye bye well that was a harmony bye, bye. <laughs> season of the bitch <laughs>